So last June, Curtis drove from Illinois to California in two days. A lot could be said about that choice, but the night between, he stayed with some friends in Colorado. We'd all worked together at our church in Illinois, and a couple of years ago, they moved to another very large church out there. Curtis caught up with them over tacos and heard how they were trying to make sense of some church culture changes. You see, the pastor had heard from God that revival was coming. The Spirit of God was going to start doing a miraculous work in their church of bringing people to Jesus and healing people and relationships and more. And in response, this pastor said that they had begun to study the great revivals of the 20th century, such as Azusa Street, which was right here nearby, and Bethel recently up in Reading. And they concluded that their church needed to prepare for revival, specifically with nightly prayer meetings that the staff would have to be at. Each and every one. In fact, the staff were told to say goodbye to their families for a bit in order to attend these meetings. There was a month on the calendar for this revival. Our friends had only ever been in our Chicago church prior to this, and our Chicago church does not leave the future to chance. They plan the future to death and make it real through leadership, work, and money. So this idea of the Spirit speaking and leading, it was equal parts relief, excitement, nerve-wracking, and confusing. They were trying to figure out, is this real? Because you have a trusted pastor, one that they had actually known from the Chicago church prior. This person's really charismatic that's leading this. There's also just a conviction that God really does speak to people and lead the way for church communities. And of course, you have stories of God moving like this in the past. Now, you may have a guess about whether this prophesied revival came or not. The month the pastor predicted is long behind us now. And in what is, I'm sad to say, a bit of a pattern for these situations, they sort of thrown shade at the community for lack of faithfulness and redoubled new preparation efforts. And while that is all clear now, it wasn't as clear then. It can be hard to tell. Is this real? If you'd like to read along today as we continue in Jeremiah, we're going to be in chapter 23. Now, last week we talked about Jeremiah's message to those with political authority about how God cares what type of society we build, and God cares that we use political influence to protect the vulnerable. Jeremiah also has a message for those with religious authority, the priests and the prophets. God cares about the type of community we build, and God cares that we use religious influence to lead people on a life-giving path. But the path that leads away from life often sounds comfy, easier to walk, and more appealing. And therein lies the problem, because it was all too easy for a false prophet to come along on the scene and say, this nice, wide, easy path, it's God's for us. We are good here. And this message would appeal to the king, who wants God's protection and provision, and it would give the false prophet more power, comfort, and an ego boost on the way. Now consider what God says through Jeremiah in chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. Woe to the shepherds who led astray and scattered the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. I love that play on words. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. Remember the word fruitful. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend to them. And the people will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. 
one common thread here. You religious leaders have not attended to who I want my community to become. And now there won't even be a community at all when exile comes. One big problem with religious leaders failing to lead well, it prevents the people from getting better. God has dreams for who the community will be and how they will represent God to the nations. They're supposed to be like a flourishing plant where the nations see figs and grapes, ripe, juicy, delicious. They're inspired to turn also toward Yahweh. The reason the prophets are often such a bummer, actually, is that they're usually telling the people it's time to change, that you aren't being this way, but you can turn. False prophets get in the way of that growth. And God's not like, hey, you know, they're all doing the best they can to talk about me. I'm invisible. I'm hard to pin down. I get it. No. God says, when you as a leader attend to your own ego, bolstered by false messages and fail to attend to the community of my followers, I am not okay with that. And so in contrast to these failing religious leaders, God says something more in chapter 23. This is verses five and six. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and exercise authority. Often it says, do justice. Exercise authority and faithfulness in the land, and in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our faithfulness. So God says, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. A king who's going to act wisely, do justice, bring faithfulness into the land. After the kings identified in Jeremiah, there are no more kings. Then Jesus comes. Jesus is the king, the righteous branch from David's line, the one who's come to gather back the sheep, care for them, and lead them down a life-giving path. The one who's come to exercise authority and call people to faithfulness. Jesus is the true prophet, the true king, the true message from God. So let's head to Matthew chapter seven. Now, a quick aside here. One thing that we see in English translations that can be really unhelpful are headings. There are these breaks in the writing that are well-intentioned, but they can occasionally disrupt the words. And I think this is one of those times. So I'm going to read a chunk of Jesus's words that have been given three unique headings in most English translations, sort of implying that they're three different teachings. But I would like for you to listen to them as a whole. And here's what I hope you'll do, actually. Would you listen to Jesus's words in Matthew as if they were actually in Jeremiah? Put on your sort of Jeremiah earbuds to hear what Jesus is saying right now. Listen for echoes between them or connecting phrases or ideas. Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered up from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, 
you evildoers. If this was Jeremiah and not Matthew, I think we would hear about this road and think, oh yeah, we walk a path that either leads to life or does not. Then we'd hear about false prophets as those who take us down a wide and easy path that leads, unfortunately, to no life. The ones that tell us that we're all fine, our worship is fine, our community is fine, that are leading us the wrong way, though. If this was Jeremiah and not Matthew, we'd hear about a fruitful tree and think, you know where they grow? In places that are rooted near an ongoing source of water, the way God has described God its own self to be. And we Israel are meant to be a fruitful tree, bearing good things as evidence of the goodness of our God. The fruit born from a good tree is like a community of goodness, justice, and faithfulness that the world sees and is enticed to come near. What's more, when Jesus alludes now to figs and grapes, those are specifically references to Israel who bear fruit when they are rooted both in the land as opposed to being in exile and in their identity as the faithful people of God and God alone. If they don't turn, they are in fact the opposite. We see that, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. When I wanted to gather them, says the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. These are the scattered people in exile who refused to return and come back to God. A fruitless tree. Consider also what we saw in Matthew verse 22, the people's response. We prophesied, cast out demons, did deeds of power. We had spiritual authority and we claimed your name while we did it. This whole section from verses 13 through 23, it is addressed to the false prophets. The ones who say that the wide and easy road is the one God has marked for us. The ones whose messages of comfort block the growth of God's people so that we could bear good fruit. Instead, the false prophets and those who follow them bear bad fruit, as surely in Jesus' day as they did in Jeremiah's. Jesus isn't speaking to us, his regular followers. He's speaking to the ones who claim religious authority. That whole section is for them. And yet, Jesus' words do matter for us. It's just not how we might have heard in the past as guidance for our individual choices, like the English headings convey. Which road do I walk? Do I really know Jesus? Instead, what we have to glean from Jesus' words to the false prophets is to listen for wisdom. Wisdom for us to know. Is this real? This message, this pastor, this direction for our church, this vision— for us, it's about who we listen to and where we allow ourselves to be led. For the people then, as much as for us now, this can be really confusing. You have prophets claiming to have heard from God directly, and then they say opposite things of one another. And this is still true. We have pastors and theologians and influencers with vaguely spiritual themes to their posts, and they directly contradict each other on a whole host of important topics related to how we would be a faithful community of God. What we often do with that then, if we're honest, is we gravitate to the people whose messages we like best. But if you had done that in Jeremiah's day, you'd have been in the camp of the prophets who swore that God would fight for Jerusalem and save them with God's might, both because it sounded better and because it sounded like something God might do. I mean, God did it before after all. If you went to the message you liked best in Jesus's day, you'd have been in the camp of typical messianic expectation. God will send a Messiah who will be a warrior king and overthrow Rome. 
and you probably could have missed the carpenter rabbi who ended up killed at Rome's hand. So this image from Jesus becomes so powerful and it takes on another layer of meaning. Instead of following our feelings, we look for the fruit. And what fruit will we look for? Because there are, I think, some false fruit that almost seems right, such as if this is God's, there will be an attractiveness to this message or this movement. It will generate attendance. But attraction and attendance are not true signs that God is in something. And then there is real fruit that can be difficult to see in real time, such as if this is God's movement, you'll see a prophetic claim realized. It'll come true. Or if this person is God's representative, the fruit of their character will be clear. But think about Jeremiah. People hated his message and wanted to kill him repeatedly. It was not a message that drew people to it. Attendance growth at the church led by Jeremiah would not have been impressive. Jeremiah's prophecies took decades to be fulfilled. He was sending the same message from God, but exile at the hands of the Babylonians did not come for a very long time. Or think about Jesus. Yes, people were drawn to Jesus, but not the leaders or the rulers or the influencers. And again, they killed him. Jesus' own prophecies about the restored world that God was bringing, even now are only partially fulfilled. The prophecies about Jesus coming in the first place as Messiah, those were centuries in the making and the waiting. So some of these ideas, they're true, but they aren't always instantly obvious. And sometimes we can't just sit around waiting to make a decision for whether this person or this message or this movement is from God or not. Similarly, paying attention to a current religious leader's character, it's an important clue But as plenty of high-profile stories have made clear in recent years, that isn't always immediately obvious or available to us. It can take a long time of having vulnerable personal relationships with those leaders to see clearly, especially in this platform, brand-based, filtered world. Many of you know we watched this dynamic personally over the past five years, and it was really hard to know at first what we were seeing. So let's go back one more time to the way Jesus describes the fruit, grapes and figs a community that is rooted in faithfulness to God and whose life together yields goodness. The way that God has always intended God's people to be. There is this fruit of the quality of the community that follows the religious leader. So Jeremiah asks, are you a community of justice and faithfulness or one of oppression and idolatry? Because the community that follows Yahweh bears good fruit. Jesus asks, are you a community of sacrifice and generosity or a community of power grabbing, because the community that follows me bears good fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are not individual attributes, but the practices of a community led by the Spirit. This is the good fruit that we hope comes when Jesus leads the way, and we practice openness to the Spirit of God together. Now, the challenge, of course, comes when the ways God wants to grow that in and among us make us uncomfortable because you could log off of our Zoom church and find many, many more who will never make you uncomfortable, who will always be sure that the word God has for you is one of hope and inspiration and encouragement. And if we say we'll follow Jesus into the world together, even if Jesus asks us to sacrifice even if Jesus asks us to put our preferences aside, even if Jesus asks us to be vulnerable, even if Jesus asks us to sit at the table with them. Well, 
that may be a narrower path. And so we have to trust. If Jesus leads us down that path, it may be a pruning experience. So we have to ask, if Jesus prunes us, will it bear good fruit? And to answer those questions, I will just close by returning us to God's promise in Jeremiah 23, 4. God has come in Christ to tend us, and we will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Good fruit, indeed.